This is the official Sasta podcast with me, Harry Stebbings, and if you'd like to see how the episodes are made here, we will be welcoming you behind the scenes here this weekend on Instagram at hstebbings1996 with two Bs. It would be awesome to see you there. But to our episode today, and it's quite rare really that you're able to say, no one in the world before me has had this job title, but this is a line that this guest today can most definitely own. So with that, I'm thrilled to welcome Travis Bryant, partner for founder experience at Redpoint Ventures, the venture fund with a portfolio including the likes of Stripe, Netflix, Zuora, HashiCorp, and Juniper Networks, just to name a few. As for Travis, prior to joining Redpoint, he was head of customer growth at Front. After spending five years building the global sales organization at Optimizely, the world's most popular experimentation platform. During his time at Optimizely, the company grew from seven to ninety million dollars in ARR, and from forty to four hundred people. Before Optimizely, Travis spent six years at Salesforce in a number of sales roles, including building the first platform sales team. I'd also want to say a huge thank you to Allison at Gainsight for the intro to Travis today. I really do so appreciate that, Alison. But before we dive into the show today, finding a quiet space for a phone call or video conference has always been a challenge. Conference rooms are always taken, so I found myself taking calls in the hallway, the bathroom, the corridor, you name it. That's why I was so excited to discover Room. Room helps businesses build a better workplace with thoughtful, sustainable products. Their mobile soundproof phone booth helps you tune out the noise of the open office. It's soundproofed using recycled plastic bottles and fully ventilated to keep you cool, even if office conversation gets heated, it ships flat and it's easy to move around and assemble. And actually, you and a team member can assemble it on site in under an hour. I have to admit, I've personally used the room booth in our office and having a shared personal space really transformed the way we work and just feel about our office. Plus, the booth itself is beautifully designed and blends in well with our interior. With room, you can also create a quiet space for phone calls, video conferences and focused work at a fraction of the cost of building a separate conference room. That's why companies like Google, Nike, NASA and Salesforce have already chosen Room to build a better workplace and Room offers free shipping and the best price on the market and as a special offer to our listeners we're partnering with Room to give you a 100 day risk free trial go to room.com slash sasta to learn more that's room.com forward slash sasta and speaking of products I love there with Room I've always been blown away by Chorus.ai it's the number one conversational intelligence platform allowing you to unlock hidden insights from customer conversations that really close deals so whether you want to increase quota attainment, coach and ramp new reps more effectively, or clone winning talk tracks, head over to chorus.ai to join the likes of GitLab, Amplitude, AdRoll, and more amazing companies already loving and using Chorus. And every week we talk briefly to a WePay partner in a mini-series to get their best advice on achieving success. This time we'll hear from Justin Goodhue, founder and CEO at Trellis. Trellis is an event management platform for charities and non-profits. Trellis enables event organizers to easily build beautiful event and fun raising pages to sell tickets, collect donations, and automate their workflows. Hi, Harry. When you build out your product, you should just know that it's going to take twice as long as you think. And you might be shaking your head right now disagreeing with me, but I guarantee you the first time you do it, it's going to take you twice as long. That list of features, just cut it in half. Cut it in half again. Find out exactly what it is your customer wants and just build that. The other stuff, they can wait. So make sure you give yourself the extra time, money, and runway to be successful. Thank you, Justin. And totally with you there. Taking the time needed is important to make sure you grow. And you can also find growth with a combination of WePay and Chase, which means payments you can bank on. To find out how you can add benefits like Chase Pay and more to your payment solution, visit WePay.com forward slash Harry. That's WePay.com forward slash Harry. However, I'm now super excited to welcome the first ever partner for founder experience, Travis Bryant at Redpoint Ventures. Good. That's perfect. Okay. I think we're warmed up. 
Travis, it is absolutely fantastic to have you on the show today. I've heard so many good things, both from Tom Tungus and from Scott. And so huge thank you for joining me today, Travis. Harry, it's an honor and a privilege. That is far too kind of you. But I do want to start saying <laughs> with a little bit about you. So tell me, Travis, how did you make your way into first the wonderful world of SAS, but then also, I think most fascinatingly, as for me, definitely the first ever partner for founder experience at Redpoint. How did that come about? Yeah, I have a bit of an odd path for sure. I started my career as an Oracle DBA and a failed Java developer and realized pretty quickly that I wasn't great at that, but I could explain what technology did and vary that explanation to different people. So that ends up being a very useful skill for customer-facing roles. So I was in services at a software company and then had this pivot point to go either into product management or into sales and in sales engineering. And that was really the fork in the road for me. I had the good fortune. My first SaaS experience was at the mothership Salesforce in 2006, prior to even the word cloud being thrown around. And I had a fantastic experience there for about seven years before running a marketing tech sales team at Optimizely for five years. And then you know, even stranger to end up in venture, but through knowing Tom and his local celebrity, uh, reading and passing around his blog posts, had a chance to meet with him directly, built a relationship and found myself stepping into a brand new opportunity, which as far as I can tell on LinkedIn, no one has the title. So I'm, I'm keen to define it and build it out. I did that research too. And you were the only one I could find, but I do want to ask, because you mentioned that your time at Salesforce first. So let's start with that. Were there any kind of hacks that you learned that really worked at Salesforce that you think are transferable to the industry and maybe a big takeaways for you. Yeah, well, I ended up in the what then was called the corporate sales organization, which was that pioneering inside sales motion, driving a lot through online and through WebEx at the time. And it was a very high velocity model. And one of the mantras that we had was the 12 quarter year. It really was, we closed every month, we made every month. There was this cadence driven by Frank Van Vienendahl and Brian Millam that you were always on. And that pace can be a of course, a bit maddening, but in SaaS, that does matter because how you recognize the revenue, it does really make a difference to push things forward and to make every month. So I, I think that was one lesson ingrained at a very early age. And the other was just even such a, a simple trick that's now become standard around fiscal year close. Shifting that from December to January was very subtle, but meaningful because we were able to close deals with companies that their budgets were ending in December. And so they needed to spend them. And so we would always get a nice pop at the end of the calendar year, but we would also get a nice pop at the beginning of the next calendar year because new budgets would open up as well as it would be the end of our fiscal year. And so we were incented to have a strong finish. And even just that shift drove a lot of behavior change, both with customers and internally with the teams. Can I ask, in terms of like the sales mentality with the 12 quarter year, did you really see a change in mentality in the reps themselves, given the urgency? Oh yeah. I mean, there were even certainly at different under smaller segments within corporate sales, they would actually have their accelerators and targets set monthly. In the higher segments, you would have an annual target, but the way that we ran the forecast, the way that we spoke about metrics and performance, there were all these sorts of subtle behavioral accountability changes that drove that sort of intensity. If you could take a deal off the table within the month, you didn't wait for the end of the quarter. And so it was trying to smooth out that inevitable hockey stick. I do want to move on more to the present day, because you mentioned that being the only one with the title founder experience. So without sounding rude, what the 
the heck is partner for founder experience, Travis? Of course. Well, the genesis of it was a conversation with Tom about the innovations that are happening in venture around platform. This idea that we should deploy more capabilities to help companies once they come into the portfolio fulfill their ambitions. And so that, as most evidenced by what Andreessen Horowitz does with talent and PR and communications, business development and corporate development, and that is a huge team and apparatus now at a fund like that. Uh, but it really has shaken up the industry to say, well, what is our response to that and how do we remain competitive? So that was the genesis of the conversation with Tom. But as I looked at and I did a research project before joining, I was a part-time EIR at the firm. And I said, well, I don't really know what platform means. It's one of the most overused terms in our industry. Let me go and figure out what I think the strategy could be for Redpoint. And if that makes sense, then let's talk about how to work together. So I went out and I talked to a bunch of founders. I talked to a bunch of people doing platform at different firms to try to figure out what made sense for Redpoint. And the insight that I had was this is really a customer process. All of these muscles that I had built from my time running customer-facing teams in B2B SaaS, you can apply that to the world of venture. And if you just swap the word founder for customer, think about customer success and the ideal customer profile, and all of these now have become best practices, we can apply that to how we think about that entire life cycle. So not just what happens post-investment, but everything from the first time they touch the brand to them considering to raise money, to us considering to invest in them, to us competing with other firms. All of those moments are opportunities to optimize and drive some discipline against. And so founder experience just means end-to-end all of those touch points. How do we create value and make sure that we respect their time, we're efficient and effective in how we build that relationship with them. Can I ask, in terms of like being super effective in your role, transparency must be key because you must be essentially kind of CC'd on all emails, like all first emails, all follow-up emails, all rejection emails, almost like in the meeting with the pitch meeting itself. How does the transparency element work? Because you obviously have to ensure that the experience is the best it they can be. But then you also have to almost be in the room, don't you, for everything? Well, yeah, there's there's some element of sampling of any sort of role. You can't be everywhere at once. But if you can dip in and you get enough data to form conclusions, then that's one way to hold accountability to the process. There's technology as well. One of the things that I'm realizing is to enable this sort of discipline, you need really strong CRM and other tools to help you learn from the process and improve it. And so, for example, one of the tools that we have in the portfolio is a company called Chorus, and they do that sort of call recording where there's AI to interpret what happened in the meeting. And I'm experimenting with deploying that in our pipeline review meetings so that we can record those and learn from them based on what we talk about and uh, how we approach in investment with a potential company. I love Chorus. I think Roy is amazing, by the way. So uh, super pleased to hear that. I do want to dive there into the meat of the show because you said there about kind of the customer element. And I want to transition slightly to the world of SaaS because when we chatted before, you said something very interesting. You said one of my grassroots campaigns is to kill the title of CRO, although I'm vehemently in favor of the scope of the role, quote, finish. So let's break that apart. I love that as a title. But why do we need to remove the title of CRO, Travis? 
Well, I have to be really careful with this, Harry, because of course I have a number of friends and former colleagues who have the role and I I don't want to be too controversial here or create enemies. Here's the thing. This is from my own perspective. I couldn't imagine having that title and going to meet a customer and introducing myself with that title because the underlying message is what I care about is your wallet, not actually you finding success from products that I'm offering to you. And so it just seems like a bizarre way to state a relationship. Focusing on the revenue part of it is the lagging indicator of what actually the customer facing teams really should be obsessive over, which is the ultimate success that that customer has from using the product. So it just, it's bizarre that to me that it's become conventional wisdom that the title for that individual that is unifying those customer facing teams, which I, I'm a huge supporter of, especially in SaaS, is in fact called a revenue officer. And I think there are other monikers that can unite that team over what the focus should be, which is really around the success of that customer. You said that about the other monikers. I'm super intrigued because, you know, I hear a lot of different functional leaders saying, you know, we're driven by MQLs and other teams driven by SQLs and other teams driven by pure revenue. And it's very fragmented in terms of targets. What monikers would you advise in terms of uniting customer facing teams? Well, you can tell from my current title, I'm in love with made up fancy titles. Uh, There's there's some experimentation here. I liked the idea of head of customer growth, something where customers should be in the title because again, that's the sun that the planets revolve around. But everyone in that organization should be thinking about how they grow that relationship with the customer. It doesn't matter if you're in marketing, sales, customer success, services. Everyone is thinking about how we achieve that manifest destiny with the customer. Everywhere that we can help them, they know about that and that we are doing that. So customer growth, chief customer officer, even customer success, that's been certainly used for a very specific role inside of a SaaS company. But that is really the thing that everyone should be optimizing for. And just to your point about metrics, that is where there is some danger of each individual team being siloed is if they're missing the larger picture. The reason that everyone is involved is actually net retention. That is the most important North Star metric that drives the success of a SaaS company. And we may break that into smaller, lower latency metrics for specific teams because of their specialization. But if they lose the picture that we're all actually trying to achieve the same top level metric, and then this is the role that my metric plays its part in doing so, that's where you get a lot of those accidents happening intersections, uh, to quote one of your previous guests. Can I ask, in terms of net retention, do you think that should be the core North Star goal then that drives everyone? Not A lot of people say a number tied directly to revenue should be the North Star goal for everyone. Do you actually think the single unit of net retention should be? I do personally, because it's the ultimate measure of the health of those relationships. I guess there certainly is a component of if you don't add enough new logos and new business, then you don't have enough of a substrate to net retend. I think I made up my own word there. We'll have to check with Webster's on that. Listen, you've got got founder experience. I'd totally go with retend, so go with it. (laughs) (laughs) But to me, the the measure of world-class SaaS organizations is that the companies that they acquire 
acquire are expanding greatly over time. You're, you're keeping those customers that you've acquired and they are finding value from the product such that they are not only just staying with you, but they're finding new use cases, finding new teams and departments, and you are growing that relationship over time. And then I think if you look at the companies that are in this generation, SaaS companies that are just really, really impressive, thinking about Zoom and Slack as two examples, when you look at their S1, where they're, what they're really highlighting is how great their net retention is, because that is a very clear measure of a subscription model health. I totally get you and agree with you. Can I ask in terms of like the net retention itself, when you do have churn, how do you think about effective post-mortem analyses? I'm always wondering this because sometimes customers maybe just aren't meant for your product. They're the wrong target segment. They don't have budget and it could not be your product. So I'm, I'm really intrigued. How do you think about effective post-mortem analyses? Personally, the concept of NPS to me is very powerful, not because of the score. And this is where there's some confusion given that S could be score or system. But what's more powerful about NPS as a program is the system. And the system is the root cause analysis and follow-up. So when we have some sort of adverse financial event, we have a downgrade or a complete logo churn, it's the five whys to keep digging with that customer, whether it's through objective data analysis, looking at their product activity or direct interviewing of the key players that were within the customer, getting down to that root of why did this not work for you? And to your point, I do think that there's oftentimes a failure in qualification in the pre-sales process. By nature, a lot of sales individuals are optimistic and positive, and they're going to look for the reasons to get someone to sign rather than not. But this is another element of SaaS where the second best thing that can happen is losing early. And so the rigorous qualification of do you fit within our ideal customer profile during that dating phase while they signed up for the trial, while we've done first discovery, it's okay to say, well, you don't match the sort of customers that we think we can have a longstanding relationship with. And it does us no good if you sign up for the product and you don't renew that first contract. We actually go out of business faster because most SaaS companies' payback periods are longer than a year. So it does us, it behooves us both to spend that time up front doing that qualification. And what should be in that qualification can be a result of what you learn from those churns and downgrades to further refine your ideal customer profile. You said that SDR, you said discovery, you said qualification. And naturally, I get super excited when I think of any SaaS funnel. <laughs> One of the many reasons I'm still single. But um, <laughs> I have to say, you do have such fun doing a podcast. Um, but uh, tell me, I want to ask about this and the kind of funnel itself, because you said before it has upended the economic relationship, but it hasn't changed the engagement model when we spoke about the rise of SaaS. So I'm interested, what did you mean by this upending of economic relationship, but not changing the engagement model? Okay, so this is a thing very much I learned during the early days of Salesforce, and it's become legend now of, I think the title is Dr. Doom, uh, was the head of renewals who came and presented to it an exec offsite and talked about if we didn't shore up customer success, adoption and usage and value realization, uh, then no amount of new business was going to fill the leaky bucket. And so the message from Mark on down, which was not just this sounds good on the posters in the office, but really the livelihood of the company was dependent on it. Nothing is more important than the success of every customer. Because in SaaS, the value doesn't
doesn't come from the new business deal. It comes from the renewal and expansion. And that's what makes the economics work. So that, that's changed, of course, clearly with a subscription business model. But what in my mind hasn't changed as much is we still think in this serial nature of the funnel, a suspect becomes a lead, a lead becomes an opportunity, an opportunity becomes a customer. And each department is participating in that component of the life cycle. Well, that's not really the nature of a relationship with an entity anymore, because the moment that a, a company signs up for a trial, whether they're paying you or not, you have to treat them like a customer because if they had a bad experience, they're going to tell others about it either by word of mouth or Twitter or G2 crowd. And so you've got to treat them as if they are paying you even from those early days. And conversely, every customer that has signed up and is already paying for the product isn't probably paying for everything that they could. And so they are simultaneously a prospect. And that means you can't think of it as a funnel. And one of the metaphors I think I have a ton of energy for is what HubSpot is doing. They call it a flywheel. And even just that shift in the visual metaphor changes how they think about investments because what they're looking for is where to remove friction to get that customer flywheel turning as fast as it can. And it changes their perspective on, well, should we invest in more SDRs to improve this conversion rate from MQL to SQL versus what we actually need to do is make more investments inside the product to guide people in the trial because that removes the friction for them getting to the first winning campaign to launch in HubSpot, whatever that might be. Can I dive in and not say two things? And sorry for just kind of firing both at you. But one is like, how important do you think time to value is today first? Yeah, let's start with that. Let's start with that first before I blow the second one. So how important is time to value? I think it's absolutely critical. And one of the things I'm experiencing early in venture here is speed matters, even in just how you get a term sheet to someone. And I know you've talked about this many times about preemptive rounds and how that's working. Speed is a huge quality. I've seen that also in SaaS. So one of the realizations that we had at Optimizely with A-B testing is you want to get people to run an experiment as quickly as possible. And so even how we did a demo and pulled that narrative story was get to the start button as quickly as possible because that's the magic moment. So optimizing for that first magic moment in a trial, in an onboarding process, it sets the hook so that you can then build a deeper relationship. I don't know if there's any more important initiative, frankly. Can I ask, when you look at organizations today, and obviously you meet a lot of SaaS companies and work with existing point companies, but when you work with them and when you meet new companies, do you find there's common points where friction or frictional debt tends to build up and where you think that kind of really needs to be a relief as such. Well, one emerging theme, and especially with the new model of product-led growth, where you see what Slack has been able to do and what Zoom, I'll just keep referring to them as these luminaries, is applying a business model in absence of understanding who your ideal customer is. And there's a fascination with, let's let the robots do the selling. Meaning, if we can just get the product to do everything, we don't need salespeople and we don't need implementation and onboarding people. But if that's done in absence of really understanding who the target customer is, there's a lot of dangerous misalignment of strategy. And so here's what I mean. If, for example, your product is the re-engineering of a business process inside of a company, let's say how tickets are handled or how a product management process works, what you're talking about is a human change management exercise. And I don't think any amount of guided tours inside the product or chat 
chat bots that pop up like Microsoft Clippy and say, oh, click on this feature because you'll get value from it. I don't think any amount of that will really help them adopt service. That there needs to be a human services or customer success team who is doing that handholding to re-engineer a business process. And so just being true to what is the problem that our product solves and who are the companies and more importantly, the people that we're solving it for and let that drive then your go-to-market strategy rather than just assuming that because companies like Slack and Intercom and Zoom and others have product like growth that we can have that too. Speaking of kind of the people that you're solving it for, if we apply that internally to the team that's helping those people solve it, do you think there's anything that we can do in terms of org structure to really increase and enhance this engagement model and bring it to the forefront? Yeah, there's of course an opportunity or I should say a necessity for specialization. You can't have one person be the deep technical expert that engages with the chief information security officer to talk about compliance, as well as then is able to come up with the economic model that ends up in the quote, as well as then is the customer care professional that's onboarding and and monitoring for adoption. You need specialization. And so I don't have arguments with specializing marketing and sales and customer success per se, but the alignment of that journey that everyone understands the larger context in which they play and why their specialization is a particular set of behaviors and metrics, they need to see the larger picture of how those behaviors and metrics are linked to that North Star roadmap, as it were. And I think an area where there is the opportunity to drive more of that is shared metrics. So there's this big debate around in SaaS around, should we have new business only AEs and then so these hunters and then farmers that focus on the expansion business and then we have CSMs that focus on churn prevention. And I don't think that there is a clear gold tablet of what that model should be. There is definitely a a first principles approach that needs to be done there. Again, back to ideal customer profile and product. Having said that, I think the idea of shared incentives and shared metrics can drive more collaborative behavior. And so taking an AE who's thinking about growth, taking a CSM is thinking about uh, usage and value realization and giving them both a shared expansion target helps drive that at its perfect, this symphony where the CSM has gone native and they've earned the trust to see where there is opportunities for expansion. And they can feed that opportunity back to their AE partner to drive that expansion evaluation. And they both get to win if they have that shared metric of expansion is just an example where not necessarily in the org structure, but in the shared accountability to metrics, you can get more collaborative behavior. You mentioned the specialization there first before the sharing. I am really interested because I had Ben Braverman, a CRO at Flexport on the show recently. And he said that actually specialization is dangerous for the customer experience because at the end of the day, the person who ingratiates you, you build the relationship within the sales process, you then want to have support you and work with you ongoing. I'm interested, how do you think about that as an alternative to specialization and as a pushback? Do you think that's potentially right and that specialization and segmented customer functions actually did deteriorates the customer relationship. I do. It's a partial yes with Ben. It's all a question of where you draw the specialization line because there are side effects to anywhere you draw that. And let me give you a very real example. So as I said earlier, I don't think it's possible for a account executive whose skill set is driving decisions, yes or no, in a software evaluation as quickly as possible. I don't think they can also be the deep technical expert in all the nooks and crannies of the product, nor in the how 
how do you map a business process and people to implement that product? I think that's very hard for an individual to be able to do all of that. And so we need to draw some lines there in specialization of skill. But where I would agree with Ben is in what is the impact to the customer? And because what you see in sometimes in specialization is, as I said earlier, this new business AE who's working on the first transaction, and then they flip it over the fence to a expansion AE or account manager to grow that relationship. That feels like a strange specialization to me because that first account executive has built trust. They have understood the context of that organization. And frankly, the incentive for them, the big deal is typically not the first deal. It's the fifth and eighth and 10th deals as you continue to earn trust and deliver to that customer. So that feels like a strange specialization where it's not customer friendly. And that to me is the guiding principle of how you should define your org structure and those behaviors is what creates the most seamless customer experience where you're bringing the right expertise to bear. And it's going to be nigh impossible to have it in one person. How do you split that, but create a coherent relationship so that every new person that meets the customer isn't asking the same questions, which is, of course, very frustrating for them. Totally with you. I guess my question there is, how do you think about, I actually had a brilliant guest on the show that said recently, accidents happen at intersections. And so when it comes to removing friction or smoothening the transition from function to function, what advice would you give on minimizing this friction? Have you found elements that work and elements that maybe don't work? This to me very much is a data and process or framework exercise. One of the hacks that we did at Optimizely, though we had different departments for marketing, sales, customer success, the operations and strategy team was called customer operations. And we had a tools and systems group, an enablement group, and a data or analysis group. But that's where the rubber really met the road was, for example, if we had had a tools person in marketing just administering Marketo and a tools person in sales just administering Salesforce and one in success just administering Zendesk, the thinking about that entire customer architecture and how the data flows from Marketo to Salesforce to Zendesk would have likely been very disjointed. Same thing with analyzing the pipeline. If you had a marketing operations person just looking at lead flow and MQLs and where they were doing that analysis was different from where the sales ops person was looking at SQLs and pipeline and forecast, there just ends up being so much time wasted on trying to get to the same canonical. And so I think that this is really well done when you have a set of principles around data and framework and process that there's a lot of discipline to. So irrespective of where that individual is specializing, when they step into the first time that they talk to the customer, they have all the context of everyone else who has spoken with them because you have great CRM and you have great training to understand what those predecessors have done in their skill set with the customer and how you pick up where they left off. You mentioned the word discipline there, Travis. Now, this is the round that requires a huge amount of discipline. I'm, I want to move into the 60 seconds faster. So essentially, I say a short statement and you hit me with your immediate thoughts. Are you ready to rock and roll? What right. motto or quote do you most frequently revert back to? I have a couple. I'm going to pay an homage to your countryman, Winston Churchill. I have nothing to offer but blood, sweat, toil, and tears. That's one of my favorites. And maybe a mantra is simple things done masterfully. What's the most challenging element of your role with Redpoint today? 
Well, for me, it's the shift from an operator role where the area was very well defined. When you're a head of sales, your week is pretty much mapped out. You have a forecast call, you have pipeline review, you have big deal reviews, you have interviews. And here, this is very self-directed. This is a product manager role. So what initiatives we're going to run, programs to drive value for founder experience, that isn't defined. And so I'm transitioning that mentality there. How should strong operators coming out of larger organizations assess which startup to join? A big cliche maybe, but the matrix that I always used was the combo of product, market, and people. For me, as a sales professional, it always started with, I got to have genuine enthusiasm for the product. Market is there's enough people who care about this that we can become a large and impactful company. And the day-to-day satisfaction in any role comes from the people that you're surrounded with. You would do a lot of really crappy jobs with people that you loved and learned from and had fun with. So product, market, and people was my matrix. SMB to enterprise or vice versa? What advice do you give to startups? This is back to what we were talking about earlier. This is first principle thinking, being really true to what product value you've created and who does that apply to, being very honest about that ideal customer profile. That will guide you to whether you start with a high-velocity SMB model or an enterprise model or both if you want to try to pull off that magic trick. Super hard one here, but what are your biggest strengths and weaknesses? 30 seconds on each. (laughs) Well, it's a little easier than I would say say, I've said this a lot to people that I've worked with and for is our greatest strengths are also our tragic flaws if used in abundance. And so the trick is how to counter the side effects there. For me, I have a detail orientation that I I can't ignore. I just notice small things. And that can be really, really effective because that is where the devil is. Of course, the side effect of that, the weakness is an over-reliance on details prevents you from seeing the bigger picture. And so I've got to push myself out of that to think longer term and more strategically. Can I ask, you said that about strength in abundance and maybe transitioning to a weakness. Do you agree with the, hey, don't bother working on your weaknesses, just elevate your strengths? Or do you think that you do need to have that combination of the two? I think it has to be a combination of the two. I agree the underlying concept of strengths finder is if you work on your weaknesses, you'll only get to mediocre when you should just work on doubling down or tripling down on your strengths. But I don't know, there's something about that that feels like it, it's a bit of a cop-out to say, oh, I'm just not good at this. I'm never going to be good at it. So that's the way that it is. I, I think you you should really work to be a well-rounded person. Yeah, I totally disagree. I way prefer the cop-out of just leaving your weaknesses on the side. But uh, <laughs> well, I do want to finish though, Travis, on a slightly element, almost hindsight really, but it's like, what do you know now that you wish you'd known at the beginning of your time entering SaaS? What I know now is the joy comes from the work or the craft mastery rather than the results or the externalities that come from that. Uh, I think when you're young in your career, you're obsessed with moving up the ladder, getting that promotion, getting the notoriety and recognition. And those come from an obsession over doing good work, in my opinion. I'm not a huge management book person, but one that really resonated with me is The Score Takes Care of Itself, which is one of the most famous, and you'll permit me an American sports analogy here for a moment, 
moment, Harry, Bill Walsh, who was the head coach of the San Francisco 49ers in the 1980s, widely regarded as one of the most successful and cerebral coaches that has existed in the National Football League. He wrote a management book about his lessons taking a poorly performing team and turning them into champions. And the message there was that if what you obsess over is the practices, the behaviors, and the competencies and frequencies, then you are controlling, you're tipping the scales in your favor. You're not in control over the outcome of the game. What you're control of is the work that you do every day. And so just that joy of craft mastery is what I've become more comfortable with, knowing that if I'm doing that with vigor and improving and learning every day, then I'm tipping the playing field in my favor in the long run. You know, I've absolutely loved that book. So I'm, I'm totally aligned with you there. But Travis, uh, this is one where I wish that I hadn't called it the 20 minute VC and I wish we weren't time constrained, but uh, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the show. And thank you so much for joining me. Uh, thanks for having me. It was super fun. My word, that was so much fun and huge apologies to Travis for going so off schedule with that one. But if you'd like to see more from Travis, you can find him on Twitter. Likewise, it'd be great to welcome you behind the scenes here. You can do that on Instagram at hstebbings1996 with two Bs. But before we leave you today, finding a quiet space for a phone call or video conference has always been a challenge. Conference rooms are always taken. So I found myself taking calls in the hallway, the bathroom, the corridor, you name it. That's why I was so excited to discover Room. Room helps businesses build a better workplace with thoughtful, sustainable products. Their mobile soundproof phone booth helps you tune out the noise of the open office. It's soundproofed using recycled plastic bottles and fully ventilated to keep you cool, even if office conversation gets heated. It ships flat and it's easy to move around and assemble. And actually, you and a team member can assemble it on site in under an hour. I have to admit, I've personally used the room booth in our office and having a shared personal space really transformed the way we work and just feel about our office. Plus, the booth itself is beautifully designed and blends in well with our interior. With Room, you can also create a quiet space for phone calls, video conferences, and focused work at a fraction of the cost of building a separate conference room. That's why companies like Google, Nike, NASA, and Salesforce have already chosen Room to build a better workplace. And Room offers free shipping and the best price on the market. And as a special offer to our listeners, we're partnering with Room to give you a 100-day risk-free trial. Go to room.com slash sasta to learn more. That's room.com forward slash sasta. And speaking of products I love there with Room, I've always been blown away by Core It's the number one conversational intelligence platform, allowing you to unlock hidden insights from customer conversations that really close deals. So whether you want to increase quota attainment, coach and ramp new reps more effectively, or clone winning talk tracks, head over to Chorus.ai to join the likes of GitLab, Amplitude, AdRoll, and more amazing companies already loving and using Chorus. And every week we talk briefly to a WePay partner in a mini-series to get their best advice on achieving success. This time we'll hear from Justin Goodhue, founder and CEO at Trellis. Trellis is an event management platform for charities and non-profits. Trellis enables event organizers to easily build beautiful event and fundraising pages to sell tickets, collect donations, and automate their workflows. Hi, Harry. When you build out your product, you should just know that it's going to take twice as long as you think. And you might be shaking your head right now disagreeing with me, but I guarantee you the first time you do it, it's going to take you twice as long. That list of features, just cut it in half. Cut it in half again. Find out exactly what it is your customer wants and just 
build that. The other stuff, they can wait. So make sure you give yourself the extra time, money, and runway to be successful. Thank you, Justin. And totally with you there. Taking the time needed is important to make sure you grow. And you can also find growth with a combination of WePay and Chase, which means payments you can bank on. To find out how you can add benefits like Chase Pay and more to your payment solution, visit WePay.com forward slash Harry. That's WePay.com forward slash Harry. As always, I cannot thank you enough for your ongoing support. And I can't wait to bring you a fantastic episode with Ali from Mapistry next week.